ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Do you think protests work? And if so, what sort of protests work? And how have you noticed how protests are changing, whether it be the laws or the way protests are conducted? There's quite extreme differences, isn't there, in the type of protest style? You've got things like Greta Thunberg, a young woman sitting alone in protest, and the momentous global and ongoing impact that she's had. You've got disruption protests, and so maybe a handful of people trying to shut down a city centre. Online slacktivism, which is just that concept of throwing a hashtag next to something and all of a sudden you're an activist. What about art vandalism as a form of protest? Which work do you think? South Australia has just introduced the harshest protest fines in the country for protesting, which is under their section called obstructing a public place. So conduct that obstructs the free passage of a public place. Now, it's quite controversial in South Australia. We're even hearing of people protesting the protest changes. And the law will increase the maximum penalty from about $750 to $50,000 or imprisonment for up to three months. So do you even know what the current laws in Victoria are and would you like to see those change? And what does that mean for free speech if we do? So today on the Conversation Hour, we're talking protests. Do you think protests make a change? Does it create change? And what is a successful protest? This is the Conversation Hour. So we'll march day and night by the big cooling tower. They have the plans, but we have the power. So we'll march day and night by the big cooling tower. They have the plans, but we have the power. Oh, if Lisa Simpson and a ukulele can't cut through, then nothing can. <laughs> Do protests work? Do they make you change your mind? Do they create change? And what defines a successful protest? Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Margaret Paul, ABC News reporter. Margaret, as a reporter, you would have covered a lot of protests in your time. You must have seen the difference of ones that work, ones that cut through Do any spring out to you? Oh, I've covered quite a few in recent times. Two that are really contrasting that I wanted to bring up was the the Black Lives Matter rally here in Melbourne, which was enormous and so passionate and so um, it was calm. It was really emotional, Mm -hmm. but it was really calm, really well organised and really clear. And to to contrast that was the anti-lockdown protests that we saw around Melbourne as well and that had a really different energy it was really chaotic it was really anarchic it felt really nasty and they're just they're just different different vibes i guess i can remember being in the middle of the slam rally gosh it was feels like so long ago now <laughs> and i don't think anyone realized how big and how many people were going to be a part of that rally. And at the time, I have to say, even though I was reporting in an impartial fashion, it felt momentous. I thought, I'm a part of history right Mm. now. But when I look back on it, the music and entertainment industry is still on its knees to a certain degree. There are still people fighting for pubs to open. There are still people that are out there pushing this. So even though that protest was huge... You look back and you think, did it actually make change? And does that matter, do you think? I think it does. I mean, I know when you're interviewing people at a protest, the first question is always, what are you hoping to achieve here? And I know sometimes it can be a bit more amorphous, like climate change. We, we just want to turn that around. Well, that's not that's hard to kind of pinpoint, right? It's hard to say this, these are our KPIs mm-hmm. and we want these met. Um, but I think... A, a successful protest is often a sustained protest. It's one where you get people coming back again and again and again, and then you can eventually turn around and point back, this is what we did, this is what we 
what we did, what we what we achieved. Then there's small scale community protests, things like pools, for example. So you have got, you know, you've mentioned Black Lives Matter and climate change, and we're going to speak about both of those today. But then you've got community protests where small members stand up and say, no, you can't do that in our community and we're going to let you know about it. Ah, Rish, let me take you back to the 90s. I was was one of those kids in the Save Fitzroy pool t-shirt when they drained the pool and we all packed in, the whole community packed in, and we filled the pool. There's a, still a photo at the Fitzroy pool. If and I can't find myself. I always whenever I'm there, I'm like, is that me? Or is that my sister? Or is that someone else? But yeah, there were there were heaps of us. We filled the pool. Another day, we went to the Collingwood pool. All of it. So we just packed in to show what it would be like if you take away our pool. All the local pools are going to be packed. It was the the. Um, there was a playwright who wrote a play for the local primary school to document that struggle, and we won. We saved the pool. It was. I'm almost tearing up thinking oh, about it. It was so emotional, but like it was a real um, community coming yeah. together. We were all on board, and we saved the pool. Taxi effective protests work if the bulk of the public support it, perhaps. And another says protests do work. That's why governments around the world are outlawing them. That's from Yuslander. Fiona's in Montrose. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning. Yes, I wanted to talk about the era of Vietnam because those protests worked and it was really a matter that it, protests have a couple of um, um, benefits. First of all, you can see how many people feel the way you feel so you can get encouraged. Also, you can let the politicians know the amount of people that are protesting so they actually get on board. And um, even way back in the in the Scottish Highlands, my, my ancestors were cleared but the people on Sky threw rocks at the troops and then they got an investigation happening and they got clusters right. Can I so ask you, Fiona, though, what, what makes you think that the Vietnam War protests worked? I was there. <laughs> so, but um, the, the war really, still happened. I, the war, no, it happened during the war to stop the war, not, to, not before it started. Um, and, and ironically, we were meant to be conscripted because um, our Prime Minister got a... Uh, a telegram from America asking for for our help with with troops, and he we didn't get he didn't get such a telegram. He brought conscription in and had to ask for it afterwards. But no, everyone really rallied to end that war, and I think that's why it happened. So I find the Vietnam War protests really hard to talk about, I guess, in the sense that, Fiona, so I had an uncle who fought in yep. Vietnam and oh. there, I 100% you know, look at why people protest to try and stop something or to, uh, to stand up for their rights. But then at the same time, we also know how that protest made men and women feel when they came home from war. So how do you balance the protest to do the right thing, but then ensuring that you're supporting the people that it affects as well? I think that's a really good point because I also saw what happened there and I've worked with people who were vets and came back. But I think that they came back and that's the point. And um, they could have been there and been, you know, and been kept being killed yeah. for, for a very little reason. So it really took um, the youth and, um, and then the parents because it was on TV every night, people being shot in trenches over tea time. So, um, you know, and my brother was about to be conscripted. So um, it, it was really big, you know, and people really felt strongly about it and stopped it. And, yeah, I feel very passionate that the, the guys who went over, um, you know, were wonderful and were doing exactly what they were meant to do. But we were doing exactly what we were meant to do as a society, saying we don't want to send you over there anymore. Fiona, good to hear from you. Thank you. This text is from Sylvia Margaret and says, we saved the Fitzroy High School when Kennett was shutting them down. And others that talk about uh, different effective protests and what actually makes them work and how many people you need on board. This one, what about the rallying of the Save the Frank- Franklin River blockades? Bob Brown and his cohorts did an amazing job. It took about three years. Saw the film The Giants just last night about saving the forests and the river in Tasmania. They won in the end. Bob Brown is a legend according to this person that's from Darren. Yeah, and there's a really good ABC podcast about that issue as well and it goes into how those protests work and what made them effective and also touching on that last point, the relationship between some of the locals who relied on that 
who were going to rely on that future dam for their job, they didn't. They weren't necessarily supportive of the protest. So how did the protest movement take into account the people on the other side of it? It's it's always a tension, isn't it? Such an interesting question. So do protests make you change your mind? Do they create change? And what do you think defines a successful protest, whether it be slacktivism, whether it be old school placards? What works and what makes a protest successful? Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone Or the times they are changing On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria This is the Conversation Hour Well the times are changing Margaret Paul but so is how we protest We are still though drawn to that classic way of protesting the Bob Dylan placard walking the streets but yet we are seeing things like hands and vandalism onto art. We're seeing more single people maybe hanging themselves off bridges. Disruption is really a big part of the protests that we see. I mean, have you noticed a trend in types of protests over the years as a reporter? I don't know. I still, I mean, we still get those big ones, right? The ones that block off the city centre and then they hang around outside Flinders Street um, blocking off traffic. Because I think a lot of the time getting noticed is part of the point. But I think what's interesting, I, th- I think what has changed, I think you still see a lot of those old school ones. You still see, I was in the library in Lilydale the other day and there were notices about the librarian's pay dispute and it reminded me of those, um, the paramedics riding on the outside of their ambulances mm-hmm. back in the day. So you still see all those all those kinds of actions as well. But I think as the media landscape changes, it's it might be less and less about getting on the 6pm news and more about broadcasting to your audience. So I think that is changing, but I still I still think those big protests are going to keep happening. David Mihia, sorry, Canales is a senior lawyer, a human rights law centre and a regular, you no doubt you've heard on Breakfast with Sammy J for the past, uh, the past less travelled. Oh, spit it out, Rochelle. David, a warm welcome to the Conversation Hour. Over the years, as you've been studying and looking at protests, what makes a protest successful, do you think? Well, thank you for having me, Rochelle and Margaret. I think ultimately, uh, I'm really glad to hear about the Fitzroy pool. I was going to use that as yes. an example. Um, because it's, it's famous and the, the photo is still there in the Fitzroy pool. I think it's a, a successful protest is one that captures the imagination. It doesn't need to be enormous. It could be a single person doing one action. It could be enormous, but... I think ultimately the point of protest is to capture the imagination. Oh, and that's if you look the, at that's protest- the Greta Thunberg one, right? The single person. And how did she capture Correct. the imagination, though? What was it about that single person protest that spoke around the world? You know, I think it's the image of a young girl sitting with a placard on strike at school. And that, that image alone, I think, sort of circulated the world because it's so kind of dramatic and iconic and it tells a story with just a photo so i think i think the the best sort of um protests are the ones that capture the imagination even some that that we might not think have been successful we're still talking about them today Mm. staying on climate change and if you look at and we'll speak to one of the young organizers of the school strike for climate that's had long-lasting impacts because margaret one of the things you mentioned before is there's the protest but then there's i guess protests need to stay and to linger and to continue in order for change for real change to occur do you feel like there's the schools for climate i feel like that's had a huge impact impact on at least how young people recognise and think about the climate. Has that been successful or is it too early to tell, David, do you think? I think it is. I think it is being successful, absolutely. And and I think it will kind of continue to be because, you know, not just sort of capturing people's imagination is important, but also keeping up the momentum. And if you have a look at some of the sort of school strike marches, they just seem to be getting bigger and bigger. Uh, because they are capturing the imagination, but they also have a really good momentum behind them. And they are protesting about something that is happening outside our windows right now. That's so, so there's true. a lot of things, a lot of things happening at once that actually give those those uh, campaigns a really big push. Because that idea of capturing hearts and minds that you spoke about, that takes time, right? Yeah. You can't do that overnight. Like the Saving the Fitzroy Pool is a much, it's, in a way it's a much easier protest because it's a simple, straightforward one. Whereas when you're trying to change hearts and minds, it does take time. And as you say, there are more people turning up, presumably because they've had their minds changed, if not to go from not supporting it to supporting it, to at least go from, well, I've supported, but I might not turn up, to turning up. Like you've Mm. got people who've changed their minds. 
That's right. And time is one of our most precious kind of commodities, right? So you've actually got people who are willing to step out of their everyday life and take to the streets and voice their opinion. And I think democracy absolutely relies on that, uh, on, you know, that, that sort of thing that we have as citizens that we can do that. But it's been very successful by the school strike for climate uh, movement. Mark, stay with us. Uh, sorry, David, stay with us because Mark has called us from Warrigal. Hi, Mark. What did you want to say? Uh, good morning to you. Uh, yeah, the point that I made is that the people that, that are not at the protest, they're getting their information from the media. And so the media and how they perceive the protest and what is being protested about is the information that's being provided uh, to the rest of the public and they can alter as to whether there's a, a groundswell or not. And... Uh, and to get more people to make the protest bigger and bigger, often it can only happen if they get the support yeah. of the various media outlets. Mark, it's interesting because, I mean, Margaret Paul, you would know, we have very strict rules here at the ABC around what we can report when it comes to protests. You yeah. know, we can't let people know where they are. We can't give information on where protests are. And I'm just wondering, David, the introduction of social media and the fact that we live our lives online now, have you seen how that has changed how we protest or the impact of protests? And like Mark just said, maybe sometimes you think a protest is bigger than what it actually is or more important than what it actually is. That, that's correct. I think it's just, I mean, social media has, has changed all of our lives and it's absolutely changed how people express their views. They can either do it directly to pol- uh, parliamentarians if that's who they're protesting, or they can find a community of people all over the country that share their same beliefs. That's why I think a lot of the social, a lot of the protest movements that we see have really excellent social media presence for that very reason that Mark mentioned. And I think it also goes the other way where sometimes say, official media reporting might might report that a protest is smaller than it actually is or than it actually looks. But I think social media is, is, a, is an incredible tool that is being used by protest mm. movements to get their word out. And David, do you think that they too, the social media is, is almost a, a more important tool than the traditional media used to be because it's about... It's about building the momentum for the movement, isn't it? I mean, I think it's 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 an incredibly fascinating and and, and at times really difficult thing to watch, mm. isn't it? Oh, absolutely. But it also provides a sort of sense of immediacy, you know, that sort of live broadcast of a thing that's happening right now. But I think the media has always played an important role, whether it's from you know Rosa Parks refusing to stand um, on a bus to some of the bigger protests that we've seen in the last couple of years. Um, The media has always played a role, but now it's also social media is playing another role that is being used quite effectively, I think, by a a lot of movements. But when we're talking about social media, then there's also the idea of slacktivism, you know, just chucking a hashtag on something and all of a sudden, David, you're an activist. Does that work against causes sometimes? I think it can do, but I think think ultimately the, the, the principle is a more important aspect in that... You know, sometimes the barrier to, to protest can be seen really high for people. And there's lots of people that, like my mum, for example, she, she'd never take to the streets, but she might sign a petition. And, mm. and it's all really just about like the, you know, sort of expanding kind of what people are more comfortable with. And I think a bit of that sort of slacktivism that we're talking about is a good sort of entry point to potentially bigger acts of kind of, you know, democratic mm. speaking up. But it, it does provide an avenue, but it's, I think for a lot of movements, that's not the only one that they're using. There's a whole variety of tactics that are involved. And just finally, David, how do you feel about the changes to protest laws in South Australia? Do you think that Victoria will follow suit? We have specific laws to protesting depending on where you are. If it's native logging, if it's abortion clinics, we have laws that are specific to those areas. But will we start to follow suit with South Australia, for example, and look at disruption laws? Yeah, look, that, that's something that we're very concerned by. What we're seeing around the country is a lot of these sort of vague and ill-defined offences, like blocking a public place, which, you know, when you actually come down to the, to the legal definition of that, it's actually quite difficult to pull it apart. I, I do fear that um, as more and more governments are doing this around the country, uh, that Victoria would sort of look to kind of emulate that. And that would be a terrible thing for our democracy. And it would be a really sort of terrible thing for anyone who chooses to speak up and speak out in the streets. It's a hard line at the moment, though, when we are seeing a shift in protests that are 
full of hate speech, even violence, and lots of people talk about they feel like that next step is going to be really frightening. So how do you create that balance between protecting people but also giving people the rights of free speech? Oh, absolutely spot on. And I think when every time we're talking about protests, it's really important to remember that peaceful protest is what we're talking about. And that's what's protected. The moment that a protest does not become peaceful, say, for example, inciting violence or actually committing violence, then the criminal law already has plenty of offences that can deal with that. And that is no longer a protected protest. So I think that there's a there's space for, for, for just a public conversation about, you know, the, the benefits of protest in, in our democracy. But when we're talking about protest, we're talking about protest that is peaceful. The moment that it steps outside of that, the criminal law might actually um, sort of step in to, to bring order back to our situation. David, thank you so much for your insights. It's, it's been fascinating. I mean, we could pull this apart all day long, mm. but it certainly does feel like we're on the cusp of change. David, thank you. It's a pleasure. And thanks for bringing up the Victoria Pool. I love it. Again. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll too. find Margaret in that shot at some stage. <laughs> David Mahia Canales, he's a senior lawyer, human rights law. When we're talking about the hashtag and whether or not that works, of course, there's a very good example that says, I'm sorry, but the hashtag Me Too sparked a global movement in a way that we have never seen. It connected women and victims of sexual harassment all around the world. The legacy media is not needed like it once was. That's a really good example, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that was a really a really powerful um, and and in some I mean there were there were the old school big protests associated with that movement as well so I think I think with the online it's often about backing up a movement that's happening elsewhere as well well we've got the writer's strike and protests happening in the United States in Hollywood at the moment David spoke there about peacefulness and you spoke earlier too Margaret about the calm that you felt at the Black Lives Matter protest that you were reporting on and isn't it fascinating when it's something that is emotional and is heartfelt and is heartbreaking as the death of people and yet there can still be a sense of calmness and if you're a, a part of that even as a reporter it's quite profound. Yeah it was really it was a really moving protest that one but I think also it, it it just went to the way that the organisers chose to organise that rally, and I think it's it's I, I, it's important to talk about the substance of the protest, but also the context around it. That was in the middle of those lockdowns, so organisers were being extremely careful to make sure that people had masks, they had hand sanitizer. So being well organised was part of um, the way that they could draw attention to the message because. You know, they didn't want they didn't want you know to be a, a super spreading event. They wanted to, people mm. to focus on the message. And talking about small scale, this one Yarraville Village no paid parking. It was very successful, but only after things did then move to a violent protest. Until that point, council just weren't listening. Reasonable pe- people being pushed to unreasonable behaviour is shocking, and can move authorities to listen. That's from Kirsten. Rebecca's in South Yarra. Good morning. Oh, hi. Um, I didn't ring about Yarraville, but um, I did live in Footscray at the time. And personally, I was appalled that two councillors were assaulted in a council meeting over that issue. And I, I thought that that really was an extraordinarily terrible way for people to voice their concerns. But what I rang about was the Franklin Dan campaign as basically what I see as the the masterpiece about how to conduct a protest. It was highly organised. It was non-violent. There was a lot of non-violent training for people who were participating in the blockades. Um, The visuals were incredible. Um, They had not just the blockade, but they had high-profile people coming in. Yeah, that makes a difference, doesn't it? High-profile. Rebecca, were you a part of it? Were you there? Uh, look, I was. I couldn't afford the fare to get to Tassie. I was a high school student, but I volunteered um, in the Melbourne office of the Wilderness Society, um, and it was just it, it was textbook. That that was how to run. I mean, a, a lot of things came together at the right time, including the um, federal election. But it was incredibly impressive the way so that. So, what made that you, run. as a high school student, want to? you know, find ways to get funds to get there. Where where did your influence come from? I mean, I was never surrounded by parents that would protest, probably quite the opposite as a daughter of a country police officer. So did you have someone that was influencing you? Where did that interest come from? My my parents were mountaineers. 
Um, my mum got to Lake Pedda before it was flooded. Um, so they were pretty involved in the environment movement. Um, and I'd been taken to protests from, I think, the age of about four. And so what do you think it was that made that particular environment in the wilderness of Tassie? As you say, even pointing out the fact that it's so hard for you to get to as someone who was motivated to be part of that protest movement. How do you make that environment or how did that environment resonate throughout Australia? Because that's what happened, isn't it? It is what happened. And that was what was extraordinary because most people will never get there. Um, so so why did they care? Why, why, I mean, I, I think that's what's remarkable, isn't it? Why did so many people care? I think it was just extraordinary. You know, I hate to use the word. I think it was extraordinary marketing by mm. the campaign organisers. And I think the word like campaign organisers, and you've mentioned a few times there, Rebecca, how organised they were, that these aren't protests aren't just done. I mean, sometimes they are done in a slap-happy sort of way or they might be an initial reaction to something. But to sustain a protest for a long period of time, you need a team of people, don't you? This needs to be a, almost like a huge organisation and a business to run that. Rebecca, thank you. This text, this is such a great conversation. I was living in Hong Kong and working directly adjacent to the Occupy Central protest site in 2014. It was an amazing display of unity and passion. It was incredibly peaceful with classrooms for students, gardens planted and an important role in increasing awareness of the situation and changes to come. Unfortunately, change didn't happen. Perhaps it makes the situation harder now for people who at the time were filled with so much optimism and hope. Protest can make change. It depends on how it's done. That's from John in West Footscray. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. For your right. We're talking protests today. There's changes to protest laws in South Australia. I think there's many people protesting the protest changes as we speak. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, ABC News reporter Margaret Paul. Margaret, so many texts on this. This is interesting. This is from Faye, who's in Eltham, and it says, when we were touring Vietnam... Uh, our guide took us to the Museum of American War. There on the wall was the front page of the Herald Sun, showing the quarter of a million people protesting against the war in the streets of Melbourne. My partner and I didn't know each other in those days, but we both looked at it and said, I was there. That's amazing, isn't it? And we, we, I mean, we do think of reporting like what's on the front page of the Herald Sun or what we report here at the ABC. We like to think of it as the first draft of history. And there it is. It is history. It's, it's incredible. Anthony Kelly, he's a social movement trainer and a human rights educator who's worked within and advised activist campaigns for over 30 years. Anthony, we've been talking about what makes a protest successful and it really depends on the outcome and how long it's running. I guess, could you put your finger on what makes a protest work? I don't think there's any single factor, Rochelle. It's really hard question to answer concretely. Um, the vast array of social movements throughout human history and throughout the world, there's such a wide variety of contexts and situations from um, national liberation struggles, struggles against dictatorship and authoritarian governments, um, liberation movements to movements against um, deeply intractable you know, social conflict and class struggle. It's very difficult to understand in one concrete way uh, what makes one particular movement successful over another. And Anthony, when you're working with campaigns, how do you advise people to, because we've talked about the importance of sustaining a movement, how do you advise people to to sustain? Because I imagine burnout must be a real factor when you're looking at some of those really um, intractable, uh, I guess, cultural and mm. social issues. So how do you advise people to keep going when I guess it can seem quite tough? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's it's all part of strategy. Hey, the um, mm. most what most people see on the six o'clock news, of course, with the, is the tactics that um, are usually the result of months and months of organising leading up to that particular action. But also, uh, usually they're a part of a long term, sometimes decades long campaign. And one of the things that we do in movement trainings is talk about strategy is talk about this long-term mobilisation and building power. And that's essentially what 
this sort of what we're talking about is it's a, it's the way which ordinary people wage politics and build power and resolve conflict on a societal level so fundamentally protests are a response to injustice or inequality and a response to social conflict so that and also social conflict that's not being responded to effectively mm. by the courts or the parliamentary systems that we have in place. It's interesting. So, I mean, there's another reference here to the Franklin River, but when you talk about how organised and the amount of work that has gone into a sustained, successful and long-term protest, Anthony, there's a text here from Tanya and it says, my partner and I were at the Franklin River protests. He still has the paperwork and journals instructing everybody on how to do a peaceful protest. He also has mm. the paperwork from his arrest. It's very interesting to look back and read on it. I'm wondering if you have reflections or even concerns because when we see protests now we also maybe this has always happened and I'm just unaware of it but we also see other groups and other bodies that piggyback that protest to get their own message across or to be visible in some way and it's not often the groups that the original protesters are wanting. It's not the image that they want either. How tricky is it to navigate who comes and what image is being projected? Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. It is part of the, the um, campaign toolkit is to um, is to mobilise in a way that holds the, uh, the core truths of the movement at the centre um, and to hold, to hold the value, um, the, the communication and the values really prominently um, as part of the campaign sort of uh, repertoire and toolkit. And that's often challenged. All the, the, the struggles that movements are part of are contested. So there's opposing views as the, the authorities come in with a re, trying to reframe the protest. And there can also be counter-protests and also groups, of course, like the far right and, and homophobic and transphobic groups that come in and use protest forms, but in a way that seeks to denigrate or disparage or to undermine the human rights of others. And that's such, so, a, such a powerful point that you've made, that if, you, if you're clear about what you're there to, to protest and to talk about, that gives you the strength to communicate that message, but also ward off any, any other messages that might try and um, piggyback or dilute or, or you know, hitchhike a ride on, on that message. Can I ask you, you've been doing this for so long, Anthony, is there any protest that really has a significance for you that stuck out over that time? Oh, it's hard to drill down to just one. Um, I, one of my um, uh, sort of impact indicators is the emotional impact of an action. It's similar to what Dave, David was talking about earlier. Uh, when you see an expression of human courage and conviction uh, that shifts, uh, and, and protests themselves can have this long-term impact of shifting culture and consciousness, the way we see the world. And um, when I see a protest that, has an emotional impact not only on the people involved in it but on the people that it's opposing on that on the authorities um, that's when I see um, some in, in, some real impact on a very tangible level have you ever seen anyone change their mind have you ever seen you talk about the the impact of someone yeah having their mind changed have you ever seen it happen tell me about that oh, oh absolutely I've seen places where, where police have left their line and joined the protests um, up, up in ADEX um, in um, Canberra in 91, we've seen um, um, timber workers in forest campaigns uh, um, join the protest groups. We've seen massive um, shifts and conversions, but that's only one little aspect of the uh, of the sort of change dynamic that protests can bring about. A lot of the um, the impact of protests is structural and long term when the ability of the power holder is undermined to the point where they can no longer carry out the injustice. There's, there's a text here from Kirsten that says love and rage are both possible and it kind of sums it up and she's got and in caps there and it's true you can have love and rage at the same time and those two elements Anthony I think would make a successful protest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're often motivated by um, anger at, at injustice and, and killings and, the, and death, and we're, we should be no strangers to the, the violence in society. And that's what protest is, a lot of protest is responding to, that extraordinary structural violence. And, um, and, and the love that can come about through protest of, the, of a new world, of a new vision, of a new possibilities also comes through very powerfully in protests. Anthony, thanks for your insights. 
Wonderful. Thank you. It's a great conversation. Anthony Kelly is a social movement trainer and human rights educator, worked and advised with activist campaigns for over 30 years. Graffiti is used to protest, says this text. And another says, I was so proud to be a part of the Slam Save Live music rallies about 10 years ago, which saved the tote amongst other venues. That's from Ben in Fitzroy. Oh, the tote's needing saving all over again. So what makes a protest work? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. talking successful protests today. You're on the Conversation Hour. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host, ABC News reporter, Margaret Paul. And that was one of the most significant global protests that we've seen, Margaret. It happened, of course, in America, but then filtered its way all the way down here to downtown Melbourne as well. Sophie McNeil is a journalist and a senior Australian researcher with the Human Rights Watch and author, We Can't Say We Didn't Know. Sophie, a warm welcome to the Conversation Hour. Globally, we're seeing quite a shift in protests and we're seeing a protest start in one country and filter very quickly to other countries and become global. Is that something that you've witnessed as a journalist but also as someone as, as a human that works within human rights? I mean, yeah, the Black Lives Matter um, protests would be the obvious example, I think, how quickly that swept around the world but, you know, became particularly unique in uh, each country that that took up the cause, you know, we saw um, how amazing Indigenous activists in Australia really, um, yeah, just just led those protests and uh, I think created an incredible movement here. Um, you know, that obviously had always gone on in Australia, but um, it, it took on a particular, I think, global connection to what was happening to um, the black community in America and then, you know, the parallels with how our First Nations people are treated in Australia. So um, it is incredible when you see things sweep around the world. I remember covering um, the protests in Hong Kong in 2019 against CCP rule, Communist Party rule. You know, Hong Kong uh, is a place that many people there had had many similar um, experiences growing mm. up to us. They could say what they thought, they could express their opinions freely. There was independent press, and then suddenly the Communist Party in Beijing um, started to assert their authority and take control. And, and people went out on the streets, desperate to preserve their freedom, their um, their way of life. And um, yeah, unfortunately, they 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 didn't win. And, and Hong Kong has now become an incredibly oppressive place to live. But I, um, a, f- a few months after I was in Hong Kong, I was actually in. Catalan in um, Barcelona, uh, and we saw similar, some of the similar tactics that the Hong Kong uh, protests uh. had used, which was organising over encrypted apps, mm. over signal, um, these kind of flash pop-up protests, and they were using similar tactics. So I thought that was also intriguing how people learn from from other movements around the globe. Have you seen too, Sophie, in all the years that you've been reporting on this and and now involved from a different perspective, but have you seen a trend in it? We've talked about the way that protests are changing and evolving over time and you've talked about encrypted apps and things like that, but are you seeing a change in the way protests happen around the world? Oh, um, uh, look, I think, you know, we've been talking about climate protests in Australia um, as we've seen these new laws, these really concerning new laws that have have been put in place just most recently in South Australia. And I think what we're seeing is a real, people are turning to protest because they are desperate and they don't feel like their voices are being listened to and they're so concerned about the climate emergency. And so climate protest is becoming a really significant social movement like the suffragettes, you know, like the anti-apartheid movement, like the US civil rights movement. It is becoming a concerted effort around the world, um, you know, by amazing individuals who are, you know, yeah, I guess risking their personal liberty because mm. going to jail uh, because they're so concerned about this and they want to send the message to governments that they that this is such an emergency and we need more action. So I'm particularly fascinated by this global climate movement and really alarmed at how governments are trying to shoot the messenger here, the people trying to sound the alarm on the climate emergency rather than end the use and production of fossil fuels. So 
that that's what I've been fascinated by recently. So, Sophie, do you think that those protests are working? Mm. If if you if what you're actually seeing from governments is not, you know, the the effect that you'd like to see from what the protesters are calling for, but actually toughening toughening restrictions there, do you think those protests are working? I think that long term, they have a powerful impact. And I think what's amazing is to see people who are willing to pay such a high price in the short term, you know, fines, jail time, none of which they deserve because peaceful protesters should never go to jail. But but they are willing to endure this um, because they, are, they, they want to show the community, the world, politicians, uh, how urgent this issue is. So I think it will change minds in the, in the long term. And some of these things do take years. I mean, the anti-apartheid movement wasn't yeah. successful overnight. You know, that took years. And that can often take generations, can't it? Are you worried, yeah. Sophie McNeil, that maybe in Australia we take the right to protest for granted? There are some changes that have come into South Australia. We have some laws here in Victoria, but we are in a relatively privileged position to be able to protest where and how we like. You would have spent time in countries where people are protesting for very different reasons, for over a matter of life or death, or even protesting could be a matter of life or death. Do we take the right to protest for granted in Australia? We do, which is why I think we haven't um, been as concerned as we should be when those rights are being taken away. I don't, I don't think it's something we think about enough at all. Um, you know, inter- international law recognises peaceful protest as a basic human right, and, and we're fortunate in Australia that, that we have had those rights upheld, you know, for our, for our lifetime. And that's why this is so alarming to see this crackdown. So we've seen it in new laws in New South Wales, new laws in Victoria, new laws in Tasmania, and then just, uh, just over a week ago, they passed in South Australia. And it's the targeting of peaceful climate activists, which is so concerning here, because yes, their protests can be annoying. They can, um, uh, you know, ca- cause a lot of disruption, but, you know, disruption is what creates social change. You know, the, the U.S. civil rights movement, um, they, they were successful because they managed to disrupt things. Same with the suffragettes. I mean, if those same women were on the streets of South Australia now trying to block mm. traffic and, and mm. hang off bridges and say, give us the right to vote, and if South Australia was one of the first places in the world to do that, then they would be facing $50,000 fines. And that's really shameful. Or three months in jail. Yeah. Or three months in jail. And what... Human Rights Watch is particularly alarmed about is that this sends a terrible message to our region. You know, we are surrounded by authoritarian governments in Asia who regularly throw peaceful activists in jail. So when Australia's democratically elected government can get away with treating peaceful protesters like this, then why should any leader in Asia worry about the consequences of locking objectors away? I mean, that that's our real concern here. Sophie McNeil, thanks so much for the work that you do and spending some time with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having this chat. It's really appreciate it. Journalist and Senior Australia Researcher at the Human Rights Watch and author, We Can't Say We Didn't Know. This is interesting because there's, I, I sort of love the juxtaposition of huge global oh, change versus small scale, I don't want parking metres in my street. Yeah. There's a text here from Wendy and it says, I was an adult who didn't protest until my community was left neglected during the Hazelwood mine fire. Protesting is absolutely vital to democracy. It's the best way to make change and the government needs people to speak up and to be able to implement change. Wayne's been waiting patiently. He's in Portsea. Good morning. Good morning. What did you want to say? Um, Yeah, look, I was one of the original group of people who organised the Melbourne Moratorium, the first one, 250,000 people. And um, I make a couple of observations. And I've been involved in numerous campaigns all my life, but... The big one, the good ones happen when there's a very small group of people who do the groundwork and then a larger organisation or series of organisations bring the resources in behind it. So with the moratoriums, it was all worked out with about 15, 20 people who met every second Sunday at the Richmond Town Hall for about nine months. Um... The idea was originally um, one from a fellow called Albert Langer, who was a mathematics student at Monash campus. And then he had a couple of friends who were organisers, young organisers in the trade union movement. And uh, various people were approached, including myself. There were three women who from Save Our Sons. And there was uh, the president of the 
Australian Railways Union. There were two nurses. And what was the skill that you brought? Because it's interesting you're talking about, you know, people who are already in the union and mathematicians and so many people have raise the Vietnam rallies here, yeah. Wayne, and to be one of the, the the founding members of that. What was the skill that you brought and how much of your time did it take? I mean, it sounds like a full-time job. Well, well, um, I, I was working um, at the time, but as I say, it was every, every second Sunday, the whole of every second Sunday, about nine months. I mean, the skills that came in were just people who... First, they had a passion for it. I mean, the, the issue that Albert wanted to stop was young men coming back in body bags. That was essentially what it was about. Um, uh, so it was really directed at stopping conscri- conscription and then getting all the um, conscientious de- objectors out of jail and then getting the country out of the Vietnam War. Now, he weren't gonna, wasn't going to do that all at once, but we thought... Getting um, objectors out out of jail was a fairly easy thing to achieve. And did you um, ever work on any other protests? I mean, that is huge and has been life changing for so many people and for generations. Just finally, yeah. Wayne, was that it? Once you did that, did you say, "Okay, I, I won't be involved in any more protests"? Oh no, no, no. Did you I continue? Yeah, I was involved in anti-whaling. I mean, I was involved with a group that bought the first ship in Hawaii. They called the Ohana Kai, and that went on to become, um, yeah, the the, wow. the anti-whaling movement in the Southern Oceans. I didn't ever go to sea, but I was involved in getting it's that in one. Your blood, I was, you know, once, yeah, once I was a involved in anti when the Springbok came to Australia, um, the the anti-apartheid protest there. I mean, it's. It's pretty chilling when you have a, a policeman on a horse who's coming, charging across the park and you're hiding behind a tree. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, we laugh not because it's funny, because it would be confronting. But, you know, uh, Wayne's talking about three significant protests mm. that he's been a part mm. of there. And speaking earlier, Margaret Paul, to people that are introduced to protests early on, that it's in your blood, it's in your family, it's in your zeitgeist mm. from an early age. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? That idea of that idea of something that you're passionate about because it's your future. You're young. It's going to be your world moving forward. Alice Simons knows all about that. 16 years of age, one of the organisers of the original school strike for climate, now about to fly to Canberra to protest to try and lower the voting age to 16. And she's with the Foundation for Young Australians. Ella, we've spoken a lot about climate change and in particular the school strike for climate and the fact that I think so far everybody's believed that it's worked. You must feel proud. Do you feel like it's been a success? You're still involved in it. Yes, I feel so incredibly proud. I mean, I went to that first protest in 2018 when I was 12 years old. Um, you know, I had never really been to a protest before, but I got along a bunch of kids to school. We made some posters at lunchtime. And just seeing the movement of people grow from a few thousand to over 100,000 and then millions globally was just incredible and for me to be here today and like have the platform to speak on radio because of that um really pushes why it was successful and why it has been such a positive in the protest movement and in the voice of young people. Ella, we're talking about um, protests all morning this morning and we've heard people on the text line are asking for us to play the whole of the song Give Peace a Chance. Can you tell me, <laughs> is, how much of a role does music play in protest these days? Because we've been hearing Bob Dylan and all these kinds of old protest songs, older protest songs, of course. Um, so are, is that still part of it? A hundred percent. I think, you know, I mean, I learned like last year and yet you turn about, you know, the use of music in civil rights movements and stuff. Um, but the way that art and that music and that, like, changes throughout society, it might just be, it might be on the streets, it might be a poster you see up, you, see up um, you know, at a bus stop, but it's what we listen to, it's what we hear, and it's everything around us is, you know, voicing opinions and voicing views. And that's, you know, that's what music does. And do you think, Ella, that the right to protest is something that needs to be protected? Are you worried about the changes of laws that might come through? It 100% needs to be protected because protest is vital to our democracy, you know. 
as young people especially, we, I mean, we currently don't have the right to vote and so protest is a form of voicing our views um, for all us young people, you know, for the hundreds and thousands of young people that got on the street, there was nothing they could do but get on the street because they didn't have that chance to vote. Well, that's what they say, so, democracy doesn't just happen at the ballot box, does it, Ella? It's about yeah, everything definitely. else that goes around it. Ella, we wish you all the best. Thank you so much for spending Thanks some time well. with us. That's Ella Simons. If we've got a bit of time, let's have a chat to Doug, who's been waiting patiently. He's in Kyneton. Hi, Doug. Hi. It would be a shame to go through this program without mentioning uh, something important in relation to Victorian history, and particularly Melbourne, and under the Balti government. Uh, there was the Tate case in uh, Melbourne in uh, 1962-63, successful peaceful protests against capital punishment, very important history, and uh, it ultimately led to the High Court taking action after many uh, students, Melbourne University students, lawyers and others, uh, who were involved right from uh, the overnight hearing of the decision by the Balti government to hang uh, Robert Peter Tate. Books have been written about it, a lot of history, and uh, very, very successful, well-organised uh, protests, uh, 24-7 vigils outside the Victorian Parliament. Melbourne University Anti-Hanging Committee was established, and many uh, theological students, lawyers, art students, others, uh, who were very, very prominent in uh, the successful protests that led to the Balti government's uh, decision to want to hang Tate being overcome. And ultimately, though, the Balti government had a win for itself under wanting to institute yeah. capital punishment statutes but with it was the death, of course, of with. Robert Ryan Doug. in 1967. Good on you, Doug. Really important to hear that one as well. Lots of people are asking for this. Let's just have a little listen. <laughs> Text Margaret Paul, we protest when governments stop listening. If we didn't read your text today or get to your call, we apologise. But there's been so many that I'd even forgotten about yes. where changes happen. So many of those local ones as well as the global ones. I love that it, it's just a way that people can express what they're feeling. It's gorgeous. Margaret Paul, thank you so much for spending Friday afternoon with us. We're just going to get out there and give peace a chat. I feel energised.